So um, when it comes to life, uh, you know this, life is full of choices. Uh, those choices range anywhere from the mundane to the monumental, and you've experienced that just this week. Uh, perhaps some of your decisions, most of your decisions were just mundane, routine. Uh, you really didn't even think about it that much because you make similar choices every single week. But for some of you, uh, you may have had a monumental decision this week, or you may be facing a monumental decision in the days to come. But life is full of choices, and some of our choices, you know, uh, are accompanied with minor consequences, and some of our choices come with big consequences. But regardless, you know, how consequential a particular choice may or may not be, there's one thing that's absolutely for certain, and it's this right here, that every choice is consequential. Every choice is consequential. And so I just want us all just to hear ourselves say that out loud. We know this is true, but we need to be reminded of it. So let's just read this together. You ready? Let's go. Every choice is consequential. Now, at times, uh, our choices lead to immediate consequences, uh, and then there's times when our choices have deferred consequences or delayed consequences. Those consequences may not show up for years. Those consequences may not show up for decades, uh, but every choice is consequential. And, and so much so, in the end, your life and my life is nothing more, nothing less than the sum total of the choices that we make. Now, our choices are not separate from us. That's how we would like to think about it because sometimes we can just blame our choices. But our choices are not necessarily separate from us. They're not outside of us. We can't necessarily point to our choices. Our choices are not separate from us. They are us because ultimately we are our choices. It's very difficult, if not downright impossible, to separate who we are from the choices that we make. Our choices reveal who we once were our choices reveal who we currently are, and our choices also reveal who we want to become in the future uh, because our choices set the quality and the direction of our life. Not someone else, not something else, but our choices determine the quality and the direction of our life. That means that where we end up in life, where we end up in life, and all of us are going to end up somewhere in life, where we end up in life and who we are when we get there is a matter of the choices that we make. In other words, our choices write the story of our life. Uh, one day, uh, you're gonna go to a funeral, and much to your surprise, it's gonna be yours. And maybe for some of you, it's gonna be the only event in your life that you actually showed up early for. You're gonna be there before everybody else. You're gonna stay late and it's gonna be your funeral. And there's gonna be some people who get up and they're gonna talk about you because they've been asked to. Uh, hopefully, they'll be able just to tell the truth. They won't have to lie. Uh, but unfortunately, you've been to some funerals before and you've heard someone get up and give an eulogy and you look at the person beside of you and say, did we come to the right funeral? Who are they talking? about. I never met that person. I, I never had the privilege to meet them. Obviously, uh, this person was known, you know, in different ways by different people. Sometimes people just feel like they got to say things that aren't true, but that's not, you know, the norm. One day people are going to get up and they're going to say things about you and what they say about you, what they're able to say about you will ultimately just be the fruit of the choices that you've made throughout your life. And in the end of your life, you will discover and those who attend your funeral, they will be reminded that our choices will define who we were in this life. Not our gifts, 
Not how gifted we were or not gifted we happen to be. It's not gonna be defined by our success or by our wealth or by our careers or our intelligence or our sphere of influence or any of those things. That's not what our life will be defined by. Our life will be defined by the choices we made, the choices that we made about faith, the choices that we made about our personal relationships from our family to our friends, uh, decisions that we made concerning our time, where we would spend our time, where we would invest our time, where we would try to save our time, uh, choices that we would make about money, uh, where we would spend our money, how we would save our money, what we would invest our money into, uh, choices about our influence, how we would leverage the influence that we have in the lives of other people. That's what will define our lives here upon this planet. Uh, in our upfront student ministry, uh, they have a way of speaking about this to our middle school and high school students, and, and they say it this way, write a better story, write a better story write a better story with your life. And, and here's the thing, I, I love how they say that because a better story always begins with better choices. Always begins with better choices. And, and here's the thing, choices are an opportunity for better. Choices are an opportunity for better. If a better story begins with better choices, then choices are the opportunity for better. Every time we have a choice, there is within that choice, the opportunity and the possibility for better, we can either stay the course or we can change the course. We can resist or protect the status quo. We can choose to grow or to stagnate. We can choose to move into the future or stay stuck in the past. Choices, choices. God gave you the power to make choices. We call it free will in the theology world. God gave you the power to make your own choices. And here's the thing, nobody else can force you to choose anything. You ultimately and you alone have the power over your own choices. And because of that, that means that God has entrusted the power to you and to me to determine what type of life that we live that we can choose, even when terrible things happen to us that we have no control over, we get to choose how we respond. We get to choose when someone says something that we wish they wouldn't have said, we get to choose how we react, what we decide to do or not do. So every single one of us, we have the power to choose the type of life that we want. And that power is in our ability and freedom to make choices. So with that in mind, here's my message today. Here's my encouragement to all of us today. So choose a better life, choose a life of purpose. Choose a better life by choosing a life of purpose. If, you're, if you have a choice and I have a choice and I have the freedom to make choices in my life, I wanna say to you, use your choice to choose a life of purpose. Now, Christians believe that our life here on this planet is not an accident. Our life is not an accident, our existence is not coincidental or incidental. Our existence, we believe as people of faith, followers of Jesus, we believe that God, that God is the creator, God is the designer, that God put us here on this earth. No matter what you believe about the book of Genesis, whether it happened in six days or whether it happened in billions of years, whatever you choose to believe about that, but you ultimately believe that God is responsible for all of the creation that we can see, that we can experience, and that God has placed you, and God has placed me, and God has placed all of us here on this earth on purpose for a purpose, with a purpose. And here's the thing, if that's true, if that's true, if God exists and your existence is absolutely because God has willed you to exist and God in willing you to exist, God has placed a purpose in and on your life. And if that's true, 
Here's what I know about you and this is what I know about me and this is what I know about all of us. We don't wanna miss it. If God has a purpose for you being here and a purpose for me being here, I don't wanna miss it. And I don't think that you do either. And here's the thing, we don't have to. We don't have to miss it. We can choose a life of purpose because when we choose a life of purpose, here's what it does. It begins to take significance and meaning and it infuses significance and meaning into every part of your life. Doesn't matter whether you love your job or hate your job. Doesn't matter what season of life you are at your family. Doesn't matter if you're retired, still in the workforce. Doesn't matter what season of life, what circumstances are going on. When you choose a life of purpose, significance, and meaning get diffused into every compartment of your life. And that is a really big deal. And it's such a big deal, that's what we're gonna talk about. Uh, we're in part four of this series uh, that we've been in all month long called Built to Last because Jesus said, I'm building my church and I'm building it to last. Not even the gates of death, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And so we've been talking about how Jesus, uh, in his final words to his disciples, uh, he leveraged those final moments. Uh, he knew the gravity of the moment. He, he knew the value of the moment. And he used those last moments with his disciples to speak to them about their purpose, about their mission, about their mandate. That if they were gonna follow him, he wanted them to know, this is the purpose that I have for you here on this earth. This is the mandate, this is your mission. And so Jesus told them, he says, as you go, as you go about living your life, loving God, loving people, I want you to make disciples. Jesus said, that's your purpose, that's your mission. You don't get to decide your own mission, you don't get to decide your own purpose, you don't get to adopt your own purpose. God sent his son into the world to save the world, and before he ascended back to the Father in heaven, he said, I wanna tell you what your purpose in this world now is. It's to love God, love people, make disciples of all people. That means no one's excluded, everybody's invited in, no matter who, no matter what. And Jesus, in the most clear of ways, he attached Jesus' followers' purpose to a who, not a what. Uh, Christians love to say, you know, what is my purpose? What is my purpose? What is my purpose? Help me understand what my purpose is. I'm reading this book to discover my purpose. Hey, listen, you don't have to read anything else to discover what your purpose is. And your purpose is not a what. Jesus was so clear. He said, your purpose is a who. And that who are the people who are far from faith. It's people who are far from God. It's non-believers. It's the people in the world that's outside of the church. He said, that's your mission. It's those people to make disciples of people who are not disciples and to love God and love people as you do it. So that's, here's what this means. And this is where we left off last week. How I see, how I think, and how I feel about the people who are on the other side of that mission, how I see, how I think, and how I feel about people who are far from God, that becomes mission critical. That becomes mission critical. Because if I fail to see them, to think about them and to feel about them the way that God does, if I fail to do that, I will certainly fail, you will certainly fail, and I will certainly fail, all of us will fail at the mission that Jesus has given us. And I think that the best place to develop you know, this framework for how to see and feel and to think about people far from God, people outside the faith, non-believers, ever how you wanna refer uh, to that particular audience that Jesus pointed his disciples in the direction of, 
if we're going to have the same framework that our Heavenly Father has, if we're going to have the same framework for how to see the people of the world the way that Jesus saw the people of the world and how he felt about the people of the world, then we need to pay a little bit of attention to what the New Testament actually says about people who are far from God, about people who are not yet believers, people who are far from faith. And this is how the New Testament describes them. The New Testament says they're lost, they're blinded, they're deceived, they're harassed and helpless, they're captive and they're dead. And there's lots of other descriptors, but, but this is just some of the headlines. Jesus said, I'm gonna send you into a world of lost people. They can't find their way. And they've lost their way and they can't find their way and they're actually on a path that's leading them to destruction and they don't know it because they're lost. There's a way that seems right to them. There's a way that feels right to them. There's a way that someone told them is right for them. But they don't know that at the end of that path, at the end of that road, it leads to death, it leads to destruction. They're lost and they can't find their way. They're just lost. Jesus said, I'm sending you into a world full of lost people. I'm sending you into a world uh, full of people who've been blinded. They can't even see the way they're supposed to go. They, they can't see what's true from what's not true. They can't see what's right from what's wrong. They can't see what's good from what's not good. They're blinded. They just can't see. I'm sending you into the world full of blind people. I'm sending you into a world full of deceived people. They've believed a lie. They've chased hard after lies and they've believed the lie. And now they're so deceived, they can't tell up from down. They don't know what true north is anymore. And they're just trying to get through life the best they can. And they're convinced they're okay. They're convinced they're right. They're convinced because they're deceived. And Jesus said, I'm sending you into a world full of deceived people. I'm sending you into a world full of harassed and helpless people. That's how Jesus referred to them in Matthew 9. Now, I want you to just picture for a moment, you know, one of those videos that shows up on, you know, social media and it'll be a helpless person, an innocent person who gets jumped on the side, you know, of a street corner, or, or maybe it's at a bar, or maybe it's at a restaurant, or, you know, it's just, it's the footage of someone who's you know, unmatched, they're not equally matched with the person who's decided to just beat them down. They get jumped, they get hurt, and you're watching the video of this helpless person who's being harassed by someone stronger, someone bigger, someone who had the moment of surprise, and maybe sometimes it's even a mob of people who've chosen to just try to kill one person. And they're just kicking and they're hitting and they're kicking and they're hitting. And we watch those videos. And if you're like me, I get so angry. I get, I get so deeply angry about the matter. But you know who I'm not angry at? At the one who's being harassed and helpless. That's not who I'm angry at. I'm angry at the ones who are harassing, the ones who are abusing, the ones who are beating, the ones who are breaking, the one who is helpless. They're helpless. They have nobody to help them. And they're just a victim. Jesus said, I'm sending you out into a world full of helpless, harassed people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And sin is destroying them from the inside out. They're captive. They're stuck in their sin. They're imprisoned in it and there is no way out for them. And then he says, I'm sending you out into a world full of dead people, dead in trespasses and sin. And again, let me ask this question, but in this way, what can you blame a dead person for? What can you get angry at a dead person about? For not doing what they're supposed to do? Well, of course not, they're dead. 
for not saying what they were supposed to say? Of course not, they're dead. For not thinking what we want them to think, they're dead. Jesus said, I'm sending you out into a world full of people who are dead in trespasses and sin. That's who I'm sending you to. And I want you to see them the way that I see them. I want you to feel about them the way that I feel about them. And I want you to think about them the way that I think about them. That's who I'm sending you to. And let me tell you, they don't need, they don't need a sermon. They don't need a lecture. They don't need judgment. They don't need condemnation. They don't need us to look down our noses and pretending that we're better than them. You know what they need? They need you and they need me and they need us. They need the church because their only hope of eternal life, their only hope of a better life is the church. The only hope for people who've lost their way and they're on their way towards destruction, their only hope is if the church decides to be the church. The only hope for those who have been blinded to what is right and what is good and what is best. Their only hope is the church. For those who've been deceived by sin, for those who've been harassed and are helpless against sin, for those who have made, been made captive to sin and are dead in their sin, their only hope is you, me, us, the church. And the question is, so what are we gonna do about it? What are we gonna do about it? And for some of you, you need to commit to the mission that Jesus gave the church. You need to commit to this mandate. You need to commit to this purpose. Because truth be told, you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never committed to it. You've never been committed to it. It's never been top shelf. It's never been most important, even though Jesus said this is most important. And you need to commit to it, maybe for the very first time in your faith journey. It's been something on the peripheral. It's been a point of reference. It's been a thing that you know, that you agree with. Yeah, that's what the church should do. That's what the church is about. But in your own life individually, and even in your relationship with the church collectively, you've not been committed to this purpose. You've not been committed to this mission. For some of you, once upon a time you were. You, you've been a follower of Jesus for a while. You're seasoned. You know the scriptures. You know, you've got faith. And once upon a time, you were committed to this. Once upon a time, you were excited about this kind of stuff. Once upon a time, you were passionate about this. Once upon a time, you were praying about this and waking up thinking about this. You had your eyes on people far from God, friends and family and coworkers and neighbors. And somewhere along the way, you got distracted and it happens. Somewhere along the way, you got busy. I know, it happens. And you got sidetracked. And yeah, faith is important to you. But the purpose that God has spoke over your life. You've not been choosing it. And you've not been choosing it because you're not committed to it. And I wanna invite you to recommit to it. Because here's the thing, you are the church. I am the church, we are the church. And here's the question that I want us to sit with for the next few moments. In a world of lost people, in a world of blinded, deceived, harassed and helpless people, people who are captive and dead, and as we talked about last week, people, as Paul described, as they're seeking after God, even though they're seeking in all the wrong directions, and they're reaching for God, even though they're reaching out to imposters and substitutes, that in a world full of those people, what are we gonna do about it? Here's my question. Will we be the church in our generation? Will we be the church in our generation? 
that takes the mission that Jesus gave us personally and seriously? And if we say yes, and we should, if we say yes, we're gonna be the church in our generation for the lost, for the deceived, for the harassed and the helpless, for those who've been blinded, we, we're gonna be the church. Let me tell you what's gonna take. It's gonna take all of us. If we're gonna do what we've been called to do, the best that we can do it, it's gonna require all of us. It's gonna require all hands on deck. It's gonna require everybody on the field, everybody on the court. It's gonna require everybody doing what they can do for those who are far from God, who happen to be the purpose for which why we are in this world. It's gonna take all of us. Now, the apostle Paul knew this and he wrote about it. He wrote to a group of Christians just like us and to make the point that it's gonna require all of us, he speaks in metaphor and it's something that we can pick up on immediately. It's kind of silly you know, as far as examples go, but we understand it and that's what Paul was going for. And this is what Paul said. Paul said, just as a body, just as your body, my body, anybody, though one, because you only have one body, it has many parts. It's like, okay, yeah, I know this. I've got hands, I've got elbows, I've got arms, I've got legs, I've got feet, I've got ears, I've got eyes, I've got a nose. Your body, though one, has many parts. And it's like, okay, everybody's nodding their head, everybody understands this. But all of its many parts, it forms one body. It's like, okay, yeah, my two hands, my arms, my legs, my feet, it forms my body. And then he says, so it is with Christ, so it is with the church. And so he's pointing to the fact that the church is this diverse movement, that it's this diverse organism, the church. We have so much diversity. There's hands, there's fingers, there's toes, there's legs, there's elbows, there's ears, there's eyes, there's noses. But even though there's all of this diversity, there is this expected, there is this required unity that's supposed to take place within that diversity. My hands can work in unison together with my body. My legs and my hands and my eyes and my ears, they can work in unity together in order for my body to do what my body needs to do. And so Paul's pointing to the fact that the church is so full of diversity and it should be so full of diversity because diversity is a good thing. It makes us smarter. It gives us a broader perspective. It makes us aware that, you know what? Not every person sees the world the way that I see the world. Not every Christian sees the world the way that I see the world. And when there's diversity within the church, that makes us smarter, it makes us better. It helps us see deeper. It helps us to understand, hey, there are differences among us and it's just the way that it is. There's cognitive diversity, we don't all think the same. Uh, there's theological diversity. We don't all believe the same things. You may take a different point of view than I take on X or Y or Z. We have age diversity, gender diversity, stage of life diversity. And even though there's a lot of different people, and even though there's a lot of things that we have nothing in common concerning, you've got your story, you've got your history, you've got your perspective, you've got your point of reference, but yet when we are the church, all of that diversity gives way to unity. And the unity amongst that diversity is what allows the body of Christ to be so effective in this world. We wouldn't be as effective with uniformity. 
which a lot of churches, that's what they seek to establish. Let's get everybody thinking the same thing, speaking the same thing. Let's make sure we can all check the same boxes, dot the same I's, cross the same T's. Let's just get everybody exactly the same. Well, that is not the point of the local church. And this is what Paul's getting at. He says, for we all, for we all were baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. In other words, we've all been saved by the same grace. The same grace that saved me, saved you. The same grace that saved you, saved the ones around you. And here's the great thing. It didn't take more grace to save them than what it took to save you. It didn't require less grace to save me than what it saved you. It took the same amount of grace, the same amount of love, the same amount of mercy to save me as what it saved you. And so Paul says, listen, in that regard, we're all exactly the same. We were all sinners. We'd all fallen short of God's glory. We were all on our way to hell, but God so loved the world, he did something about it. And now all of these differences come together in the body of Christ. Now we've got brand new identities. Identities that bring us together rather than separating us. We don't think in terms of Jews and Gentiles or slave or master or male or female. We're now the family of God. We're sons and daughters of God. We are brothers and sisters. We are a family of faith. We are so different and like your family, this family, it's jacked up, it's messed up, it's screwed up. I, I remember in the church that I attended when I was a teenager, um, there was Sister Pearlie. Sister Pearlie, was the, the greeter and the keeper of the doors. Uh, she would welcome every person as they came in. She would welcome all the people when they left. And, and Miss Pearlie, Sister Pearlie, as we called her, she looked exactly what you think a Miss Pearlie would look like. She had that white hair and it was just put up in this amazing bun and she was always dressed in the nines and she was always there opening the door. And she got to know me and I got to know her a little bit. And, and when she kind of, I guess, caught a vision for my life. And, and she told me one day, she goes, I really think you're going to be a pastor one day. And it kind of freaked me out because Miss Pearlie wasn't wrong about many things. And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you picked it up on somebody else. I, I, I don't think it's for me. And she goes, oh yeah, I think you're going to pastor a church one day. And one day God's going to allow you to pastor a large church. And she goes, I want to give you a word of advice. And I said, I, 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 okay. She said, church is like a cake. The bigger the cake, the more nuts you can fit on top. <laughs> so I just want you to look around here and see how many nuts we have fit on top of this cake here at the creek. I mean, it just is. It jacked up, messed up people who follow Jesus. There's no other top. I don't care how they try to pretend, how buttoned up they try to seem. There's junk in everybody's heart. There's stuff that everybody's working through in their minds. There's things in the past. There's things in the present. There's gonna be things in the future. And so now we're together. We're brothers and we're sisters. And yeah, do we have some problems? And yeah, do we have some issues? And yeah, do we not see everything eye to eye? Absolutely. But Paul says we're still one body and we are working together for the purpose that God has called us. So we're in this together. Um, another story that I kept thinking about this week as I was reading these verses happened back in 2005. In 2005, uh, <clears throat> we went on a mission trip to Argentina. So we went to Buenos Aires, Argentina. And <clears throat> we went down there 
And we uh, partnered with an organization called Word of Life and Alice and I, we uh, stayed the week with um, this missionary couple. And then uh, we would go into the city of Buenos Aires um, every day. And, and we would partner with a, a very specific local church and we would help that local church and that community uh, plan and execute VBS. We would go around, knock on doors, invite people to the church. We would get out, give out information. We would go down to the busy town square and we would put up a sound system and, and we would do anything we could just to get an opportunity to get an audience with people and to just talk to them about the things that we thought that mattered most, which was faith and purpose and meaning and how all that was connected to Jesus. But what you may not know about me, and some of you do who've been around here for a while, um, <clears throat> I'm a bit of a germaphobe. I'm not like I used to be. And no, I'm not opposed to hugging. I hug people all the time. Uh, I have people coming up all the time saying, I'm not gonna hug you. I know you don't hug. I hug, so come on. Uh, <clears throat> I prefer not to hug for hours, but hey, I'll hug. Uh, I, I love to fist bump. I, I do the handshake. I do all the things. But, you know, I, I'm a little conscious of germs. I, I studied microbiology uh, pretty good in college, and, and so I know how that works. And when it says 99.9% .9 effective against viruses, I know that 0.1 is all it needs to reproduce. And, and, and so it's like, okay, I understand. And uh, But we were there, and, and we'd been with this church all week long, and We'd been serving beside of them and praying with them and we were with them from sunup to sundown and, and it was towards the end of the week and they wanted to celebrate communion with, with us. And, and like I said, there's diversity within the church and, and it doesn't matter whether it's Presbyterian or Pentecostal or you know, Catholic or whatever. It, there's just one church, capital big C. There's just one church and, and they wanted to celebrate communion with us Americans and, and so we did. And, we were all in this big circle and, and they did it a little bit different than how I'd ever done it. And you know, I saw the bread and they went around and they were giving everybody a piece of bread and that's what we'll do just a few moments when we celebrate communion. And then I was looking for the little cups. You know, I was looking for the little cup they were gonna give me. And, and all I could find was just one chalice, like a big one. And I was thinking, well, that's odd. Where's the little personal ones uh, that are just for our own individual use? And, and then it dawned on me uh, that communion was gonna be taken with this chalice and we were just gonna pass it around the circle. Well, then I started counting. I said, one, two, six, 12, 15, 21. There, is, there are gonna be no places left to place my lips on this cup where someone has not been before. And I thought, you know what? It's probably not a good thing to hold it up and, and pour in you know, the blood of Christ in your mouth from a distance. It's probably not something you wanna do, nor it should do. And, and so you know, we were doing it and I, I did the only thing I could do. I did the only thing that I should do. When it came to me, I, I just, I tried to remember what this was all about and live in that moment. And I, I, I took that chalice and I took that juice and, and then I passed it on to the next person. And after it was all over, I was thinking, you know, this is exactly the reminder that Jesus wanted to give the church. We are so different in this circle. I can't even speak your language. You don't even share my skin color. We don't even come close to having the same history or point of reference. I'm American, you're in Argentine, your family's from here, mine's from Kentucky. And we had so little in common, but in that moment, we had the most important thing in common, and that was our savior and the purpose that we all shared together. And it didn't matter how much diversity existed in that circle because there was something more important that brought about unity. And that's what Paul's talking about. He says, even so, even so the body is not made up of one part, but many. We get that, hands, feet, toes. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, 
It would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. It's like, okay, we get that. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Because there would be no ears. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? There'd be no nose. He says, in other words, if we were all the same, if all of our body was the same part, that wouldn't be a body, that'd be a monster. Can you imagine six foot thing of hands coming at you? I mean, how disturbing, or worse than that, feet. Just a body of feet. I mean, what if when you shook somebody's hands, you were just patting feet? I, I, well, that's hell on earth. That's a monster right there. Just all the same body part, but no. You put two hands and you put fingers and thumbs and legs and toes and feet and hip and you put hamstrings and calves and knees and you put a neck and you put ears and nose and eyes and a mouth and a tongue. You put all that together and it becomes this body that's so meticulous and so amazing. He's saying we're different. And we don't look down at each other. The eye doesn't look at the ear and say, <laughs> sucks being an ear, I bet. <laughs> ear doesn't look down on the eyes saying, boy, I tell you, this, this whole body would be better if we were just all ears. No, it's not, that's not how it works. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. You know that that's not the way it is. He says, it's not the way it is in the church either. We don't look down on each other and say, you know what? You're not like me. You're different. I, I don't really even understand you, kind of different. And I think you'd be better if you were like the other parts. I think things would work better if you were just like the other parts. And Paul says, no, we know that's not how it works. So we're not gonna look down on each other. We're not gonna judge each other. We're not gonna critique and criticize each other because we're not like each other. We're not supposed to be like each other. And Paul's point is every part of the body, my body, your body, is invaluable and indispensable. You got a part you're just itching to give away? No, you got a least favorite toe? Got a finger you're not particularly attached to? You're right-handed, who needs the left? Take it? Well, of course not. Every part's invaluable and indispensable. And then he goes on, he says, but in fact, but in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, God's the designer, God's the creator, just as he wanted them to be. God is the designer of how our hands and opposable thumb works, how our organs, our circulatory system, our respiratory system, how our brain communicates in a nervous system throughout our entire body, how the blood carries oxygen, white blood cells, red blood cells, God has fearfully and wonderfully made the body. And he has designed the body to work the way it's supposed to work. And he's placed all of these different parts to work as one. Paul says, what if that's true in the church? What if that's true in the body of Christ? That you are where you are as a follower of Jesus. You are a part of the church for a reason. You're not just part of the big church, capital C. You're a part of the local church, little c. And you are where you are for a reason. You do what you do for a living. You have the gifts that you have for a reason. You have the resources and the influence that you have for a reason. And God has placed you in the body with a specific function that only you can bring to the church. And the church is made better because you are a part of it. Even though your part 
is nothing like other people's part. He says, if they were all one part, where would the body be? A body of ears would miss the eyes. A body of eyes would miss the ears. The body needs every part. It needs every part to do what it's supposed to do. He says, as it is, there are many parts, but one body. And then he just keeps teasing this out. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. No, because every part is needed. Every part of the body is invaluable and indispensable. What if that is true in the church? What if that's true in this church? That you are a part of this church for a reason, for a purpose. And your part, you, your part, though it doesn't look like my part and my part doesn't look like your part, your part, your part, you, your part is indispensable and it's invaluable. You are indispensable and invaluable to the local church. The church can never look at anybody to say, we don't need you. We'd be better off without you. We're just gonna cut you off. No, that's not how we treat our body. Paul says that's the way it is in the church. He says, so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other because we need each other. We're concerned about both of our hands because we need them. We're concerned about our ears because we need them. He says, we should be concerned about each other because we need each other, which is why the New Testament says that in the church, we're supposed to love each other, bear with each other. You know why the New Testament says we're to bear with each other? Because some of us are hard to put up with. Some of us are hard to put up with. Some of us struggle more in this season of life than other people do. Some of us have a harder time walking a straight line than other people do. We gotta bear with each other. We gotta be patient with each other. Everybody's working out their own salvation individually. And how I'm working out my salvation, it may not look exactly the way you're working your salvation out. We've been saved by one spirit, by one grace, by one love, by one act of mercy. And we're to bear with each other. We're to carry each other's burdens because sometimes that part of the body can't do what it needs to do. There's some things going on. It's bruised. It's broken. And when it gets bruised and broken, you have to overcompensate for it. And when it's bruised and broken, you have to help carry the burden. You have to overcompensate. You have to build up. You have to cheer each other on. Hey, we need you because we do. We prefer one another, accept each other, forgive, we submit to, we comfort each other. We stir each other up because sometimes we get distracted and we get bored and we get apathetic. But we cheer each other on and say, hey, listen, don't check out. Don't walk away. Don't get complacent about this. I need you. We need you. So we pray and we serve and we're hospitable and we decide not to judge each other and we seek good for each other and we decide we're not gonna envy one another. We're gonna choose to bless one another. Why? Because when we treat each other that way, every part is better for it. And when every part is the better for it, the body is the better for it. And when the body is the better for it, that means that we can carry out the mission that God has given us. I mean, who wouldn't wanna be part of that? 
This is what the world is looking for. This is the type of community that the world is hungry for. This is the type of camaraderie that people are born to seek after. It's this type of love. It's this type of grace. It's this type of respect, this type of dignity. And Paul says, we gotta be busy doing this with each other because we need every part at its best. So the body's at its best. And so Paul brings the ultimate point. He says, so now, I say all that to remind you, you are the body of Christ. Not just me, just not you, but we. The closest you'll ever be and I'll ever be to Jesus in this world is when we are with the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, everything that was true of Jesus should be true of us. Jesus invited the rejected and so should we. Jesus accepted the unwanted and so should we. Jesus loved the unlovable and so should we. Jesus forgave the unforgivable and so should we. Jesus raised the level of life everywhere he went and so should we. He raised the level of dignity and respect everywhere he went and so should we. He extended hope, so should we. He showed love indiscriminately, so should we. Sin broke his heart. He decided he would speak all truth and show all grace all the time, no matter what, because he was busy seeking to save those who were lost and what was true of him should be true of his body. Each one, he says, each one of you is a part of it. You're a part of this body. You're a part of the church. You have been invited in. And the moment that you took that invitation to come in to the family and the kingdom of God, you were sent out with a purpose to love God, love people, and make disciples. Here's what I know, every single one of us, every single one of us, we are where we are today with our faith because once upon a time, there was a group of men and women who decided we are going to be the church in our generation and we are gonna pass faith on to the next generation. I think about the church that I grew up in in Bell County, Little Brick Church, White Steeple, about 100, 120 people my whole childhood. It was there that I came to faith in Christ. I, I was sitting about the second pew from the back and I was so afraid of walking in front of people because back then I thought, man, you just gotta walk in front of people to be a Christian. And, and I, you know, it, it's just the way it was there. It was kind of the tradition and kind of, kind of just the way they did it. And so I waited to a Sunday night to give my heart to Jesus because there were less people there. And anybody who showed up on Sunday night was most likely because I was related to them already. And so I, I, I wasn't too embarrassed in front of them. And so I, I got saved in that church. I gave, I gave my heart to Christ in that church. And I realize today that it's because there was a generation of people who took their mission and purpose seriously. There was a group of people who gave money to build buildings, to furnish the building, to put heat and air in the building, to keep the electricity on in the building, to put sound in the building. There were people who gave their time to teach Sunday school, to show up early and to stay late, to sing in the choir, to study sermons and to preach them. They gave their time to volunteer. And I realized today that made a difference. So how do you know it made a difference? I'm not sure if they believed that everything they were doing made a difference, but I'm gonna tell you on that Sunday night, when I gave my faith, when I get paid, placed my trust in Jesus, when I received the gift of faith, it made a difference in my life. 
and what the church did for me, what a generation of believers, what they did for me and what they did for you and what they did for us. We owe it to the next generation to be the church in this generation, to be the guardians of faith, to be the stewards of the church. One day, many of the people who paved the way to get us to this point in this place in time, they're not gonna be here, but there'll be another generation that all over again will have to decide, will we be the church in our generation? Will we take our opportunity to be the body? Will we hand things off stronger to the next generation than how it was handed to us? So what's the point, Trevor? Here it is, this is it. The local church is at its best when every part is doing its part. You are a part of the local church. And we are at our best when you and me and us are doing our part. And here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. This is what I'm gonna ask you to do. I wanna ask you to commit and recommit to this mission. I want you to keep inviting. Keep inviting friends, family, coworkers, and neighbors because you never know what hangs in the balance of just inviting someone to come sit with you. And maybe you invited them time and time again and they said no, they said no, they said no, they said no. You just don't, you just don't quit. You just keep inviting. And that's what I need you to do. Play your part, do your thing. You have friends, you have family, you have coworkers, you have neighbors. Invite, invite. And then I'm gonna ask you to be here, to attend as much as you can to be here because it makes a difference when you're here and it makes a difference when you're not here. When all the body is together, the body can be at its very best. I wanna ask you to continue to give to the mission of the local church. There's nothing more important than eternity. There's nothing more important. We know and believe that generosity changes lives. And when we give our money to the local church, we are helping to fund the mission of what Jesus called us to do 2,000 years ago. I wanna invite you to connect with a group of people in a group so that your faith can grow. I want you to serve on a team and volunteer because you have a gift to share. You have talents to share. You have time that you can bless somebody with. The church is at its best when every part is doing its part. So let's stay, let's stay committed to this mission, to this purpose. Let's stay committed to being a church where people who don't like church love to attend. Let's stay committed to making it as easy as possible for those who want to turn to God. Let's take away every unnecessary obstacle Let's not make it unnecessarily difficult for people to come to faith. Let's never forget that for some people, it's one of the hardest decisions for them to walk through the doors of a local church. They got the wrong ideas and the wrong perception. Some of them think they don't have nice enough clothes, that they gotta dress a certain way. Some of them think that they've gotta stop doing certain things before they can show up. That they gotta believe a certain way before they can show up. So let's keep making it easy as possible. If we can disarm them with music, with dimmed lights, with friendly environments, with relevant, understandable teaching, if we can disarm those far from God when they walk in so that they give ears to the good news, then why in the world wouldn't we do it? We're at our best when every part's doing its part. You have a part to play and I'm gonna invite you to commit 
doing your part, to recommit to doing your part. One day, there will be people and they'll tell the story of how they came to faith and they will tell the story of their church. And though they may not use you by name, when they tell their story of faith, they'll be talking about you and they'll be talking about me and they'll be talking about us because we decided that we would be the church in our generation. Before Jesus was crucified, he took his disciples to the upper room and he gave them bread and he gave them wine. And he said, this is the beginning of a new covenant. Not a covenant of law, but a covenant of grace. This is my body that I'm gonna give for you. And this is my blood that I am gonna shed for you so that you can be forgiven, full and free. Invited in to the body of Christ with a part to play and a purpose to pursue. Right now, I wanna invite all of those who are gonna be serving the bread and the cup to go ahead and begin to distribute. And as you receive the bread, if you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you, I encourage you to participate. That as you receive the bread, that you would just hold it in your hand and hold the cup in your hand until we all receive it together in just a moment. But Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this remembering who I am and what I did for you and for the world, for those who are lost, for those who are deceived, blinded, harassed, helpless, captive, dead in trespasses and sin. Remember what I did to invite you in so that I could send you out. So let's just bow our heads. And as we hold on to that bread and to that cup, let's focus our hearts and minds on what Jesus did for us, who he is, our savior, our redeemer, a friend to sinners, the one with unlimited grace and uncompromised truth, the one whose heart was broke when he saw sheep wandering without a shepherd, when he saw the fields of people broken and hurt and bruised, who decided not to see them as the problem or as the enemy, but he saw them as the harvest to win. Think of the cross and his indiscriminate, unending, perfect love. A love that says no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, you're invited in. You can be part of the family of God. And as we do, remember those who've yet to take that invitation. Remember that there's a world of lost and hurting, helpless, harassed people who need you, who need me.
unidas. Jesus told those disciples, as often as you do this as the church, know that one day I will do it with you again in the kingdom of God. Because the movement that you're being swept up into is a movement that's built to last. It's the church, it's the body of Christ, and the gates of death will never prevail against it. And as often as you do this, Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for your body, for your blood, for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness. God, help us to take what we believe. And God, help us to take it to the world because we believe it's the only thing that can make a difference. We are a people of faith, a people of diversity who are unified around what's most important. So Father, help us to take that confidence, that conviction, that belief to a world that's lost, that's blinded, that's captive and dead. And God, help us to be the church in this generation. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,